The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Welcome to this What's Working in Washington Extra, where we unpack issues of the moment and of importance. You know, there's a battle brewing in your kitchen and the supermarket. What is food and how do you know if it's good for you? You know, it's widely acknowledged that the only thing that has kept the world from starving to death, this population has exploded over the last 30 years, has been technology. Well, we still face tremendous population growth and resource constraints, and there's a new generation of emerging food technologies that have the potential for allowing humanity to continue to survive climate changes and population growth. But only if these new methods and new foods can overcome regulatory hurdles and entrenched interests. Joining me in the studio to talk about these important issues are Stuart Pape, the shareholder, a shareholder, and practice chair at Polzinelli, where he practices in the area of food and pharmaceutical regulation. Stuart, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Gene Grabowski is a partner at K Global and an expert on public relations and strategies with a particular expertise in the food industry. Gene, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And of course, in the studio is our third guest and co-host for the segment is Richard Levick, founder of Levick, an international expert on crisis communication and technology trends. Richard, thanks for being here. Great to see you, Jonathan. Well, gentlemen, I, I titled this, this show as I started to do my notes, You Call That Food? And it does strike me that there's a really interesting meta trend right now. You know, recently we had, was it Beyond Meat go public? Seems like there's a war brewing over plant-based alternative meats. Let's, let's talk some about that. Well, I think you're right. There's a long history in the food industry of innovation bumping up against entrenched interests. In the late 19th century, the, when margarine first came to market, the dairy guys went bananas and had laws passed in several states that required margarine to be colored pink in order to make it look unpalatable to consumers. What you're now seeing with the meat and dairy interests fighting plant-based beverages, plant-based burgers and things of that sort is really just another chapter in a long book. Pink margarine. Yes, would you put that on your toast? And I don't know what to, maybe it depends on me being colorblind, I guess. But well, it was intended to produce cognitive dissonance in the consumer. You would, you would look at it and say, oh, geez, that doesn't look like butter. That gives me a weird feel, and therefore I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to go back to butter. But doesn't the history also show, though, Stuart, that inevitably the, 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 the progress can't be denied? It, it may be, go slow, and the interests, uh, other interests on the other side may try to uh, retard the progress or try to hold on to what they have, but inevitably it moves forward. And they, they reach a compromise at some point, and then the old ways erode. I mean, is that true? Because pharmaceuticals, food, they're, they're regulations. So isn't it an inevitability that when a new food source is introduced that it, it, would, it would succeed in the market? It's some of those rules and some of the laws are intended to protect entrenched interests. And the question, but I, but I don't disagree with Gene, that ultimately, typically, the innovative products find a way to make it into market. Much of the arguing really isn't about whether the product should be on the market, but it's about what you get to call them. So the dairy industry, for example, at the moment, is objecting in lots of different places, at FDA and the Congress and the courts, over the use of the word milk 
in connection with, take your pick, almond milk, cashew milk, oat milk, rice milk, um, soy milk. You know, they originally started out making the argument that consumers were misled. And um, there were a number of judges who sort of burst out laughing when that argument was made because it's sort of a hard argument. If you bought a container of soy milk, did you think it came from the soy cow or some other exotic animal? I mean, there's really not any misapprehension as to what the nature of the product is. So now they've shifted their argument a little bit. But much of the argument is about naming. Interesting. I I think there's something more to it than that. But before I talk a little bit about my mental map of people, you know, having little stools and, and milking almonds, let's let's come back to that. Richard, is this a branding thing or is there something bigger going on here? Well, I'd, I'd really like to focus the remainder of the segment on milking almonds. That seems like <laughs> where we should uh, go here. I just thought it was a little well, you know, FDA, yeah. Former FDA Commissioner Gottlieb did observe that almonds didn't lactate. It's good to know. I always learn something on the <laughs> exactly. show. Exactly. That's what we're here to inform. That's <laughs> yeah. right. You know, I think I think there's a spectrum here. There's a continuum, and that is, on the one hand, there's there are clearly things that are not healthy, but there are also economic interests, such as is there really confusion over a soy-based product or versus uh, homogenized milk? And then there's also at the other side of the spectrum, there are professional plaintiffs and the plaintiffs firm. And you know, Gene and I know this from many years of working together. Uh, when it comes to food recalls, there are many uh, plaintiffs' law firms that not only have professional uh, plaintiffs, but also optimize the web so that they're controlling the narrative. And from that becomes all the social conversation on the web about something being healthy or unhealthy. So I think it becomes very, very confusing as to what we're supposed to put in our bodies and not. Years ago, when we went to nutritional labels, I think there was the thought that we could somehow become more educated about what we consume. But it is, it's an increasing challenge and uh, sometimes hypocritical for us. Let's try to differentiate here between what I would call sort of a, a food innovation. I mean, margarine that's blue, for example, might be a food innovation uh, for people who like blue food. But with respect to what's going on with plant-based meat or cell cellular grown, it seems like there's a fundamental difference in that. There is, but it all comes down, as it always does, to what the consumer wants, what the consumer will accept. It's going to take some time for consumers to get used to these products. We may have, in the next 50 or 60 years, products that are very different from what we have now, these pioneering products that are made out of plant-based proteins or what they're starting, what they're experimenting with in the lab the, uh, the, the, from stem cells. We don't know. But what we do know is if the consumers start to appreciate it and have a desire for it, the processors then will change. The supermarkets will change. And thus, the manufacturers and the farmers will have to change likewise. It doesn't start from the top down. It starts from the bottom up. It's what the consumers perceive that they want. One of the things that is quite interesting here is the, the amount of money in Silicon Valley that having disrupted many other industries is now investing in food. There is an, just an enormous amount of investment in new food, and it's often brought with a sort of broader social perspective, because if you look at one of the arguments for plant-based foods and cellular-based meats replicating hamburger and chicken and fish without the animals, without having to raise and slaughter the animals, are environmental, uh, climate, and social benefits. So you're seeing, in some respects, I think that's a bit different than 
the historical innovation in the food industry, which Gene is absolutely correct. There's, there's always been that, you know, you can go back to the beginnings of time. Right. People have figured out, hey, if I, if I keep that cold, then I can eat it in a week from now as opposed to it being bad when I just leave it out. That, that's an innovation. I mean, people have been innovating as long as we've been eating. Bird's eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Frozen yeah. food. But, but this changed. layering of social issues on is a bit different, I think, now. Well, and I think it's really hard for the food industry. You know, Gene, you talk about uh, ultimately the consumers get what they want, but consumers don't know what they want. What is natural? Well, it sounds good, but tobacco is natural. What's organic? Undefined. What's local? It gets increasingly hard to define. We also want convenience, but in order to get convenient tomatoes, we have to use the tomato harvester, which, you know, patented by Stan Reese from Michigan State. Hardly, hardly the same kind of tomato that you grow in your backyard. We want low fat, but we also want it to taste good and we want it to be filling. So I think it's a, it's a very hard path for industry to follow and it constantly changes. And then, you know, for consumers, I think at the end of the day, at least for a whole generation of consumers, what we want ultimately from our food, immortality. Immortality. Well, we want you, nothing wow. to be. We don't want anything to be unhealthy. We don't want anything to yeah. be toxic. We don't want anything to put on weight. But we also don't want it to be animals. But I also want a double chocolate cupcake. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, part of the challenge for the food industry is exactly what Stewart is saying in terms of self-interest and sometimes throwing out arguments that only make it more challenging. Oh, they'll be con- con- confused, and we're seeing that right now with plant-based foods. But also part of it is the challenge of what consumers want. You know, when it comes to chocolate and there's the challenge of cocoa for centuries, which has been driven largely by child forced labor and consumers don't want that to happen. But there's also a limit to what they're willing to pay for a chocolate bar. So it puts cocoa companies in this vice of we want to do the right thing, but you're also telling us you're only willing to pay so much. The history of uh, innovation and development of new foods really intersects with the development of civilization. And if you go back, and so the challenge that food companies face today is really the same challenge they've always faced, except maybe the pace of change is accelerated, is figuring out what is society, what is going to be like five and ten years from now, how are people going to be living, how are they going to be moving from place to face. I mean, if you had said, I don't know, 20 years ago that you would get, some person would knock on your door at seven o'clock and hand you a bag with your dinner in it. How many of us would said, would have said, yeah, oh, absolutely. I see that happening. Mm -hmm. Where I live, my next door neighbor is an older couple. 100% of the time they get their food delivered. Part of that, though, Stuart, is that it's, it's, it's more top-up now. There's more stakeholders involved. In the 1950s, 60s, when I was growing up, uh, you, you saw the cereal commercial. Sugar on, on your cereal was no big deal. Nobody cared. It was top-down. Whatever the marketers uh, put out there and advertised, the, uh, the, the public literally ate up. But now, because of social media, the Internet, uh, people are far more informed. There are more stakeholders involved. There are more concerns about the environment. There are concerns about nutrition. It's more of a, uh, of a bottom-up experience. So food companies have to be more reactive. And as you say, Stuart, it's happening so fast now. It used to take decades for things to evolve. Now it's a couple of years, and you have to make adjustments in your formulations. Which is, which is it's a great point, Gene. And it's why I think you see 
most of the innovation coming from smaller food companies because by definition, they're more nimble. You actually see the same thing in the pharmaceutical side. Most of the innovation, mm -hmm. the, the cutting edge new drugs are found and created by small companies. They often wind up getting bought by bigger pharmaceutical companies who have the sort of marketing and promotion uh, uh, ability. But the innovation comes from small places, not big places. Absolutely. Well, you see that in food. Organics, for example, the small organic companies in a couple of years, their their business model is to be bought by Kellogg or by uh, ConAgra or somebody after right. a few years. Right. This right. is exactly right. And it's also, frankly, the way our industrial uh, cycle works now for creating new, new innovations. And after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the role of regulation and the rule setting in enabling these different innovations because as a definition of what meat is plays out for the marketers and the best interests, it also plays out with respect to food safety. So we're here at What's Working Washington Extra talking about food. Thank you to our sponsor, the Greater Washington Board of Trade. The Greater Washington Board of Trade represents leading businesses, nonprofit organizations, and academic institutions, and has helped shape the development of our region for over 130 years. Visit boardoftrade.org to learn about how a Board of Trade membership can help your organization succeed in this rapidly changing marketplace. What's working in Washington Extra? We're talking about food today. I'm here with Stuart Pape, the shareholder and practice chair, shareholder and practice chair at Puccinelli, where he practices in the area of food and pharmaceutical regulation. Gene Grabowski, partner at K Global. He's an expert on public relations and helps businesses deal with challenges in the food industry. And our co-host for the segment, Richard Levick, founder of Levick. He's an international expert on crisis communication and technology trends. Before the break, we've done a very good job, I think, of pointing out our society is a crossroads. Plant-based meat, cell-grown meat, different technologies to help feed the world. Huge regulatory problems there, right? Yes. Regulation in this area is a mix of things that protect traditional products from, quote-unquote, unfair competition and rules that are designed to allow innovative products to enter the market. So we alluded to this a little bit in the first segment. Um, if I make a product that is a beverage that is refrigerated and it's made from a plant, a nut, or something like that, can I call it milk? Well, there's a standard of identity for milk, which is a type of law that came about, type of provision that came about in 1938 when the modern food industry first occurred because before that people bought didn't buy things in grocery stores they made them at home so if you wanted mayonnaise you made it in your kitchen you made ketchup in your kitchen and then when the modern food industry developed you went to a grocery store and something was labeled mayonnaise and so congress enacted a law that basically said to FDA define what mayonnaise is so that when the consumer goes to the grocery store and they grab a bottle that says mayonnaise 
it will have a reasonable relationship to what they would have made in their kitchen. Fast forward, the standard of identity for mayonnaise requires eggs. Somebody comes along and says, I can make a mayonnaise functions, behaves, tastes like mayonnaise without eggs. Miracle Whip. And they did. Just mayonnaise. Dun, dun, Just dun. mayo, it was right, called. Right. Well, then there you get the intersection between innovation and the regulations which are designed to protect the naming of these traditional foods. And that's that's sort of really the really the battle. I mean, it's a fair question of whether those old standards of identity really should be kept around anymore because do we really need regulations that protect mayonnaise from competition as long as the products are fairly labeled. But let's go back to 1938 and what drove that. And that's, it's largely Heinz who's created ketchup out of tomatoes. Heretofore, it was never used. And he ended up having to, once his bottle became famous, and he had one of the first national, really the first national distribution of a uh, produced food that people used to either produce at home or buy from stores that had no resemblance to today's uh, tomatoes, that he had to do two things. One was to buy up all of those glass bottles that looked like that to the point where he ended up burying a lot at sea in the river so that competitors couldn't get it. And two, he wanted it to be clearly labeled as a specific product to make it more difficult for competitors to challenge. Well, well let's wait. Let, but let's separate, you know, using a name or a magic word to denote the component parts. You know, mayonnaise, it, it had eggs in it. Ketchup had tomatoes in it. And now being used as a an effectively a protective mechanism. Let's separate that from the the food safety attributes of it or just generally how you, you deal with this in, in industry. Gene, I know you spent a lot of time helping companies deal with the regulation from the sort of the back end. Are we forgetting that ultimately there needs to, there needs to be a safety aspect to this conversation? Well, I don't think it's forgotten at all. I do think, though, that uh, uh, one of the things people don't fully realize is that USDA, for example, which regulates uh, meat and dairy, uh, is basically an agricultural services exporting product around the world. They're, they're a sales organization more than anything else, but in addition to being a regulatory uh, safety body. FDA, actually, I would argue that food safety right now is as good or better than it's ever been, partly because of the Food Safety Modernization Act, which has been put in place since 2011 in segments. It's still it's a work in progress, and it probably always will be. But there's a food safety culture now. Companies are far more aware of, of the safety, uh, of the importance of safety. And it's because the, uh, partly because the FDA has focused more, and because of the Food Safety Modernization, Modernization Act, FISMA, on prevention more than just reacting. And I think that that's made a lot of companies aware. The companies that I work with have to have now uh, safety uh, recall programs in place, safe for communications as well as the logistics. That was before FISMA, there was nothing like that in place. So there's a greater awareness, there's a food safety culture now. In, in most food companies. So I don't think it's been lost at all, but I do think what Stuart's point uh, is, is so important. Now with technology and now with the sharing of information uh, uh, on the internet so freely, we have a, a, a confluence of forces that we never had before. And it's, cre- it's, it's gonna be chaotic for a while, but I don't think food safety has been forgotten. And Gene, you know, the, the irony of your comment is that food is safer than ever before, but we now have zero tolerance. Yes. And so- How so? W- 
we have you have one death or uh, an isolated illness, and it becomes national news instantaneously, uh, largely driven, as Gene uh, spoke about earlier, from the grassroots. A few years ago, there's a peanut recall, but we all think it's a peanut butter recall because a two-person plaintiff's law firm in California has a, a, vi a video that goes viral within 24 hours of the announcement, and it controls the narrative. So we're all afraid to buy peanut butter when, in fact, it was initially an isolated incident. Zero tolerance. Well, but not, yeah, but not to be a, too much of a contrarian. I don't think it you, Stuart, come on. I don't think it unreasonable to, when you sit down for a meal that you should assume that you'll be able to get up afterward and still <laughs> yes. be breathing. Depends and... on the company. It depends on the company. <laughs> but but I think no, Stuart. I think that your point is was well taken. And we're not. I don't think we're arguing you know, opposite sides. We're just saying that we have a much more critical public than we did before, and we exist in a world with professional plaintiffs, so they're taking apart everything. You know, when you say natural, is it really natural? Is there some remnant of something in there that we might be able to prove, or is it synthetic? Yeah, that, that that activity is distasteful in, in my view. But look, most of the risks in food come not from processed food these days. They come from produce. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and it, it's sort of an interesting intersection. We encourage people to eat. You want to eat healthy? Eat more fresh fruits and vegetables. Right? But that is also the place where the risk is greatest because, by definition, fresh fruits and vegetables were grown in fields where there were animals. And so that's sort of one of the, one of the real challenges is there. The safety of processed, manufactured food is, it's as Gene has said, good. is as good as it's ever been. Well, but if, while we're safer than ever before, if you ask people in the street, uh, is food safe. They'll tell you it isn't because they're seeing all the news about recalls. There's about 500 publicized recalls in a year, partly because Richard's right about the uh, public, you know, the publicity around it. But it's because now we're able to measure and find uh, listeria and salmonella where we couldn't 10 or 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then you add on top of that, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta now plays a role. They put out their own news releases about this and sometimes actually cross wires with folks at the FDA on this. So there's a lot more awareness. We can find the, the foodborne illness now that we couldn't find many years ago. I would also argue that one of the casualties of our society after 9-11 has been our inability to actually proportionalize risk anymore. That's also true. Uh, as Richard said, of, I, I've got many, many clients who maybe four people in the country might get sick or maybe two dozen, which is nothing when you consider we serve a billion meals a day in this, in this country, a billion a day. And if, if a dozen people get sick, it's national news, let alone somebody die from it, and it becomes it can it can sh it, it can shut down a, a, a company for good, uh, and and actually cripple a whole industry like we've seen with spinach and romaine lettuce. Richard, you deal with crisis communication a lot. Is this ultimately a crisis communication challenge, or is it a broader social issue that we can get ahead of? Well, I think it's both. And, uh, you know, Gene and I worked together for many years, uh, and we've all, both worked with Stuart through the years, and uh, there's certainly any number of challenges. The professional plaintiff issue that I mentioned earlier and the litigation over undefined terms, organic, natural, is only going to increase. I think there's also something that consumers, you know, when I say 
this is someone who for 40 years, you know, I make my own mayonnaise, my own mustard, my own yogurt and ice cream. I don't do anything processed. There's a food safety issue waiting to happen. That's right. Please come over. Think twice if Richard invites you to come over. And Stuart, what was that standard you mentioned earlier about being able to get up afterwards? That's that. But, you know, the whole issues of GMOs, genetically modified organisms, for which almost no one knows what the GMO stands for. But in this country now, after 40 years, everyone knows they're against them. And I, you know, I find that really troubling because one of the things that genetically modified foods are able to do is reduce or eliminate hunger and disease in Uganda, in India. Uh, and yet we have this whole movement. And once a movement becomes monetized, when the, the moment that Cheerios says we're GMO-free, even though there are no GMO oats, or Ben & Jerry's were GMO-free, and uses it a marketing advantage, and it's a cool company, a cool product, a cool brand, it's too late. And people think it must be bad. And yet what's happening is the very people who think it's bad are the people who are inhibiting an end to starvation, an end to vitamin A deficiency in Uganda where 40% of the kids have uh, spinal problems or go blind or die of hunger. And that's not right. We need to think a little bit more on our concerns about food safety. I'm going to quickly climb out on a limb here with two professional communicators to my right. The source of that problem are the innovators of GMOs because they were insufficiently transparent when they started. They, they were telling their investors what a great innovation this was at the same time they were telling the regulators that it was no big deal and it didn't need to be disclosed or scrutinized. And that intersection produced the consumer mistrust that Richard describes. Yeah. There's, the food industry is still upset over what uh, yeah. the, those, those companies did. And uh, Stuart, you absolutely identified it. We have to communicate openly and transparently. The consumers controlled that conversation. Well, I got to tell you, I wish that I had another half hour with you so we could talk about the politicization of food. <laughs> but this has been a really wonderful conversation. Stuart Pape, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Gene Roboski, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. And Richard Levick, as always, thanks for helping us put this together. Thank you. What's working in Washington next year? See you next time. We believe there's such a need for authentic information that's positive and useful. You know, there are many, many people here in the D.C. region who get up every day and just get after creating new things and are committed to making our community better. My producer, Tracy Madigan, and I speak with people every day that tell us amazing stories of that they want to share about the progress they're making, the things that they care about, and why they're proud to be part of the greater Washington community. You're going to meet many of them on this show. That's what working in Washington really means to us. Now more than ever, I feel that a positive voice is needed in our society, our communities. We need to make sure that we reach each other and that we work together. And we'll do our best to make sure that we're genuine and every show provides you with useful insights. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan. And our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout out to Marymount University School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. 
Check us out at marymount.edu. And of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Sarefoil Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade who provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.